Hi, hey, welcome to the Cordial Catholic Podcast, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, and those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. This is a place to have Catholic conversations with Catholic thinkers about Catholic topics. I'm K. Albert Little, an evangelical convert to the Catholic faith, and if there's one thing I noticed as I was becoming Catholic was that everything, almost everything, I knew about the Catholic Church was not really true. It came from Protestant sources, sources that weren't from within the Church, didn't know a lot about the Church either. This podcast is there to fill that gap. You'll hear about a variety of Catholic topics from actual Catholics who are rooted in the heart of the church. This episode is a fantastic one. I'm joined by Steve Weidenkopf, a lecturer in history at the Christendom College Graduate School of Theology, and the author of a number of fantastic books about the history of the church and controversial topics like the Crusades and the Protestant Reformation. What Steve does a fantastic job of is going back to those actual sources and revisiting that history from a very clear-eyed perspective, not relying on the established tropes of what these different events were all about, but really focusing on the primary sources and really unpacking what actually happened at events like the Crusades and the Protestant Reformation. And that's our topic for today, the Protestant Reformation. Was it a reformation or a revolution? Steve Weidenkopf gives a very convincing and clear-eyed argument about why we should maybe call it the Protestant Revolution instead of a reformation. It sounds a bit goofy on the face of it, at least it did to me as a history major in university, but his arguments are convincing, very compelling. After all, did the reformers themselves see themselves as reformers or as revolutionaries? What were they trying to reform exactly? The church that Jesus established? Or were they trying to form their own church based on what they believe the early church looked like? It's an interesting and compelling presentation, I think. And Steve gives some great reasons why maybe this wasn't a reformation after all, but instead a revolution, a revolt against all things Catholic. Before the episode begins, I do have two new patrons to thank. Thank you, Nicholas G. and Brian A. for your support of the show. It goes a really, really long way into helping me to pay the bills and keep this thing going. And I really appreciate that support. So thank you so much for supporting the show and supporting the work that we're doing here. If you would like to support the show, please visit patreon.com slash cordialcatholic and even $1 a month can help the lights stay on and the show continue to roll. Without any further ado, my interview with Steve Weidenkopf. Please listen and enjoy. Welcome back to the Cordial Catholic Podcast. I'm joined this week by Steve Weidenkopf, a lecturer in church history at Christendom College Graduate School of Theology. He is a popular speaker, the author of a number of books, including The Glory of the Crusades, The Reformation, and his latest book, Timeless, A History of the Catholic Church. And I'm very excited to welcome him on this episode. Hello, Steve. 
Hello, Keith. How are you doing? Thanks for having me on the show. Hey, I'm doing great. And you know, I, I mentioned this on Twitter. I'm setting a bit of a precedent here because this is the way our scheduling is going to work out. I'm going to have two back-to-back episodes with Steve's on both episodes. So I'm I'm setting the bar a little too high because I can't think of any other Steve's to have on after you. So. <laughs> well, that's that's pretty cool. That's that's neat. That's good to know. Yeah, it's gonna be this, the 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 uh, interesting Catholic Steve podcast. I think in the there end, if I can get a few more going, uh, we're gonna talk about uh, the Reformation today. And uh, for me, uh, I'm an evangelical convert, and I think in the case of a lot of evangelicals, uh, I didn't know a lot about church history. We didn't really have a history, so to speak. I mean, for us, and I've heard this from a lot of converts, the history of the church kind of ended after the Acts of the Apostles and didn't really pick up again until the Reformation. There was this kind of mythology around the early church that we see uh, at the kind of the end of biblical times, that it was this uh, disparate group of believers who kind of met uh, in hidden cloisters and... Um, what eventually became this big monolithic Catholic Church was a kind of corrupt, politicized religion. And then, of course, the the Church wasn't rescued again until uh, the Reformers came along. This is kind of the the picture I had of of Church history. Can we start by talking about that idea? Yeah, sure, absolutely. I mean, that's you know, that's a very common what I call false narrative, right? That that everything you just laid out there in terms of of especially from, you know, a Protestant perspective, right? You have this kind of pristine early apostolic church that was close to Jesus, um, you know, had all these, uh, you know, Christian teachings and way of life and, and everything was just very, very kind of pristine. I mean, it's almost, um, uh, you know, this kind of almost a fairy tale to use the word, frankly. I mean, hmm. the, uh, this image that exists of what the early church was, right? And then all of a sudden, um, you know, there's varying theories and, and different uh, names given for it. Some call it, call it the Great Apostasy or whatever. But you know, most of your mainline Protestant groups don't necessarily believe that. But but you know, somewhere along the line, and different Protestant groups will have a different kind of historical marker for it. But many of them kind of place it in the fourth century with the rise of Constantine, the Roman emperor, right? That they say somehow then or around then in the fourth century, the, this, this movement, you know, the way the early Christians became the Catholic church and, and the Catholic church was very Romanized or became Romanized as, as a result of Constantine and his influence. Um, you know, and if you don't know the history of Constantine, I mean, just briefly, you know, he was a Roman, uh, son of a Roman emperor, the Western Roman emperor, Constantius, actually. And when his father died, the legions in Britain, you know, proclaimed Constantine to be the emperor, but that wasn't the way it was supposed to work. And so there was another guy in Rome named Maxentius who he proclaimed himself to be emperor and so anyways he constantine had to take his army and go and, and fight against maxentius uh, to for the throne in essence and as he's marching his army through gaul right he sees this miraculous sign the sources tell us of a cross in the sky with the latin phrase in hoc signo vinces around it in this sign conquer and so constantine has his roman soldiers paint the image of the Cairo, the Greek monogram for Christ, on their shields. They march into battle with this Christian symbol. They defeat Maxentius, and Constantine becomes the Western Roman emperor. Now, as a result of that, he begins to highly favor the, the Catholic Church because he believes that he's been kind of handpicked by the Christian god, so to speak, to, to be emperor. And so to 
to show his favor or to return the favor, he begins to legislate Christian morality. He outlaws certain things that are in Roman culture and Roman society that are antithetical to the Christian faith. He begins to give money to the church. He builds churches. So there's a lot of, of there's a big change that happens with the church as a result of this uh, this you know this kind of patronage by the Roman emperor. And so a lot of Protestant groups will say, well, aha, see, that's when things began to go wrong in the church. That's where this corruption kind of came in, where this change in doctrine, where this accretion of all these Roman kinds of things, where the church became more affiliated with the state, uh, where you had you know priests and bishops adopting Roman ceremonial garb for liturgical vestments, all these various kinds of things. And so that's kind of, again, the false narrative goes is, is where things began to go wrong. And then as you as you uh, really kind of nicely um, you know briefly summarized it, I mean, pretty much from there until the 16th century, there's really not too much uh, that happens outside of maybe the Crusades were bad that you know, and you have um, you know the the Renaissance popes and some other things, some some massive corruption in the church, and then all of a sudden. You have in the 16th century, you know, the rise of Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and others, and you know they somehow uh, decide that they're going to reform the church. That that heretofore in the centuries up to that point, there's been really no one or, or no one successful uh, in in reforming the church, and so it's it's up to them. And that's and really what Calvin Calvin is the one, frankly, who kind of post, postulates or po, you know posits rather this. This new this this narrative this myth that's been embraced not only among as you mentioned Protestant uh, groups but also secular historians. It's Calvin that says you know what we have now when he's writing in the 16th century the Catholic Church is not what was the original early church, and so what what his view was was his, what he believed his role was to be was to restore the the Christian faith to its pristine state as it was in the Apostolic Age. Uh, you know, free from Roman corruption, free from this ent entity called the Catholic Church. So that's really where it kind of starts. It starts with Calvin. So he tries to create something different, something new, um, which he thinks is what the early church was. But, you know, it's hard to determine from Calvin how, where he thought, you know, what, what sources he was using to base that on, because, um, you know, he he really adopted a lot of, of um, you know, Various heresies that that obviously predate him, uh, teachings of Luther that he he also had changed, um, but you know at the end he he kind of picked and chose what he thought and created in his own mind what he thought the early church was like. I mean, just one example. One of the greatest uh, writings we have of the early church fathers, very early in the second century, Saint Ignatius of Antioch. All of his, his seven letters that we have um, are imbued, if you read them, imbued with just this understanding uh, that the early church was Catholic. I mean, he talks about the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. He talks about the hierarchy of the church. He talks about the importance of the Bishop of Rome, for example. Uh, he talks about uh, you know all these very Catholic things, and it's Calvin who actually called the letters of Saint Ignatius of Antioch fairy tales. So that kind of gives you the sense of the man who is 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 kind of shaping or what he believes is shaping, uh, you know, or reforming the church to make it back to what it was. But but he's doing it in a pick and choose kind of manner, and he's doing it in from something that's his own creation, his own interpretation of scripture, and not at all rooted in what the early Christians 
uh, with the writings we have of the early uh, for church fathers, for example, illustrate for us that the, the church then and the church throughout history, um, you know, in its essence, has been ca- and is Catholic. <laughs> you know, that's a fantastic way of of putting it. Um, I think the interesting thing for me, so as I was reading my way into the church, I I went through the early church fathers, and like you say, I, I encountered a very Catholic church in the in the earliest church. But then I actually, I think if I recall correctly, I actually went back to a couple of my, the profs that I had learned under. I took a few, a handful of church history courses. And like I mentioned, and like seems to be the case is, it starts from a place of um, the Reformation was this, was this thing that shook the barnacles from, from the Catholic church, that it was this, this awful Catholic church that had corrupted the faith and the Reformation was there to, to fix it. And even the secular historians that I was reading in those courses, uh, we've said, had that opinion. So when I went back to try and study the Reformation for myself, as I was looking at the Catholic Church, I tried to pick a couple of the most secular textbooks I could find. And these were big, like 800-page like tomes I was going through. And th- the thing that struck me the most as I read these very secular historians was what the reformers were were getting up to it 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 wasn't i found this kind of magical time of discovering the ancient church and these amazing doctrines and beliefs that have been lost i saw a picture of these uh, religious people who were almost shopping their religion around to different uh european princes and kings and trying to get people to to sign on to their new understanding of of the faith not that it was this new amazing discovery, and then the Catholic Church has somehow corrupted this ancient faith, but almost as if they were trying to get people on their on their team and trying to spread this new thing to gain themselves notoriety, to get their version of Christianity to be the one that was the most popular. Is that I mean, I was surprised by that characterization of the Reformation. That wasn't what I understood it to be. It se- it seemed a lot more political when when I read what these secular historians were saying versus people who are necessarily super anti-Catholic or super pro-Protestant. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. I mean, you know, I, I would kind of, I mean, I don't necessarily disagree in some sense, but I think I wanted to, I would clarify that by saying that I, I do believe that at least through my research and, and readings of Calvin and, and Luther and Zwingli and others and their, their writings and what they were about, that I think that that they really did, right, to give them some credit, I really do think that they, that I know that they believed in what they were doing, right? So these weren't just men mm-hmm. who were, yeah. you know, looking for political favor or, you know, were kind of, uh, you know, snake oil salesmen, for example, or, uh, but they, they were, they were, they did have an honest belief in what they were doing. It, it's just, frankly, that what they were doing was incorrect, right? And so uh, they, they, did need i mean the, the you know the political situation at the time was such that you know especially if you're going to you know view the events of this time period more through a political his, historical lens that you needed you know the the support of uh, secular princes and rulers uh, to be able to you know advance your movement um, and in some cases i think especially with luther his was a situation where he really began uh, and and further and wanted to further a theological revolution that was the heart of what his teachings were about but he needed political support to have that uh, to make that movement become you know uh, really a part of german society so he appealed to the german nobility to accept his teachings and some saw in some of them the secular rulers saw in luther an opportunity 
to kind of use him, frankly, as a way in which to further their own political agenda, which was you know, to increase their independence from the Holy Roman Emperor, to decrease dependence from the German area on uh, the Pope, for example, as well, and the church as a whole. So, you know, it was kind of as a both end, right? They, they, the kind of so-called reformers um, want, needed political support, but then, you know, once you once you kind of get out of your your theology, for example, and and you you begin to ask for political support from secular rulers, you, I think, all of these men quickly realize that then you begin to kind of lose. Maybe except for Calvin, who had a little different situation, but they begin you begin to lose. Um, control, right, of your movement. It gets co-opted for things that you probably didn't necessarily want it to be co-opted for, uh, or you just recognize that, you know, that's that's part of the of the deal, and I have to kind of accept some of the things I don't really want to accept uh, by getting secular support. So I have to compromise on a few things or, or allow them to run in a direction I don't want them to run because I need their support to, for my my larger goals. So, um, yeah, it was just caveat that, that comment with, the, with those uh, that characteristic. Yeah, no, that's definitely, that's very fair. I guess I was surprised by what seemed like this pristine movement that was trying to decouple the church from, from politics. But then in order to do that, you have to, in the same breath, kind of couple with politics, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. That's very true, yeah. That's interesting. So you kind of touched on this idea, and this is something that really fascinated me, was, so when I when I first encountered some Catholic historians... I initially thought that avoiding the word Reformation was maybe a bit silly, a bit strange. And I've heard a number of Catholic historians choose different terms. But as I began to study the roots of the so-called Reformation, and I realized how kind of polemically charged that word was, Reformation, where it entails we're reforming something. I, I wonder if it's a, a proper description, what what you would say. And can you speak to that idea of the Reformation? I mean, did a Reformation, properly speaking, did that actually take place, even though it, it's so common to call it that? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. And, and I get that question a lot because um you know I'm, I'm one of those as you mentioned catholic historians who who tend to use the word i do use the word on tend i use the word protestant revolution to describe what happened here in the 16th century rather than protestant reformation um and frankly you know that's that that's uh, that, that's very charged in a certain sense um or it can be and, and some people are very off put by it um and i've even received some kind of push back in Catholic circles for using it because some would argue that the the term Protestant Reformation has become so normalized, so to speak, that um, in both secular as well as ecclesiastical history that uh, you should we just should continue to use it because that's how it's just more commonly known as. Um, and I, you know, frankly, and I, I understand that perspective, but I, I disagree um, with it because I think that you know, in charity, right, we need to. To describe things from, especially from a Catholic perspective, we need to describe things um, as accurately as possible. And so, you know, a good way I like to kind of uh, characterize this or use an example is, you know, in the pro-life movement, there's there's a big difference between saying someone is pro-life and saying someone is anti-abortion. And so you have, um, you know, that might be true in its essence, right? Someone who is pro-life is anti-abortion, but you know, it's it's more than just you're against abortion, right? You're you're for life, and so you, when you have certain, um, you know, media outlets or whatever that that consistently use the word over and over again, anti-abortion, that that tells you something about their own thoughts, right, on the subject. 
And so I think that's very true of this, this, this same terminology, Reformation and Revolution. Because when you really actually do look at and read the writings of these you know, men who lived in the 16th century, who challenged the church, who, who advanced heretical uh, teachings, men like Martin Luther, John Calvin, you know, Ulrich Zwingli, others, they in essence really were revolutionaries. They were not reformers. They did not – because the difference is – the way to describe this is a reformation seeks to reform an organization from within to make it better, to correct abuses, to restore good habits. A revolution, on the other hand, seeks the destruction of an entity and its replacement with a new thing. And when you read the writings of Luther, especially his three treatises uh, in, in 1520, and you read the the um, you know the Institutes of Christian Religion by by John Calvin, you read you know Zwingli, you read what what he was about and what he taught. These men really were revolutionaries. They were about the destruction of the Catholic Church. They wanted to replace the church with something that they thought was, as we mentioned earlier, more pristine, more apostolic, back to the early church, uh, and something that wasn't what the Catholic Church was uh, and is. So that properly is a revolution, not a reformation. And and frankly, you know, when you look at – I just was looking through a, a book that I had read a bit ago, a, a biography on Luther from you know, from a, a non-Catholic historian, and, and in there he, he mentions right that Luther himself never saw himself as a reformer. Luther never uses the term, never calls himself a reformer, didn't see what he was doing as a reform. Uh, if anything, Luther kind of referred to himself as a – wanted to be seen as and referred to himself as a prophet. He thought that he was you know, a new – in his time, a new age prophet, so to speak, who was trying to call God's people back to what he believed was you know, a more authentic understanding of the Christian faith, uh, which was not that. It was in, in essence a theological revolution changing completely what the church had, had taught for, for 1,500 years at the time. So – you know, that, so it's interesting, right? That we have this kind of this focus on the terminology of it's a reform, it's a reform, it's a Protestant Reformation, when at least one of the the major characters, the major actors, the, one could argue even the impetus for the whole movement, never even referred to himself or saw himself as a reformer, uh, but rather saw him himself as something much much different. Uh, so why should we use that term, right? We need to use authentic terms here, and I think it's more accurate. Um, to use Protestant Revolution because then we can begin to talk about, well, who really were these men and who, what really did they teach and what impact did they have on the church but also on Western civilization and and how should you know we as Catholics and Protestants move forward in the future in terms of trying to find ways to, to be united uh, as Christ wants us to be. That's really fascinating perspective on on Luther from his own words. I think I, I was. We take our kids occasionally down the street. There's a Lutheran church, Evangelical Lutheran church, down the street here, and they have a play group. We, I've got a couple of kids, and we occasionally go to the play group, and they give you coffee. And I, I was once standing there drinking coffee out of this mug in this gymnasium with the kids running around, and I looked down in my hand, and the mug that I have in my hand says, uh, "Five, you know." The Reformation 500th anniversary, um, it's all still about Jesus. <laughs> and I kind of chuckled because I was, I was at that time reading uh, a history book of, of the Reformation, and I thought, was it really, though, all about Jesus? Because there's a lot of personalities involved in here. Like, what was it really about? 
Yeah, that's that's very true. Yeah, I mean, that, that's obviously, I mean, a nice little slogan to put on a coffee mug, but it's it's very oversimplistic about uh, that it was all about Jesus. It, there was a lot more uh, to it than that, obviously. Yeah. So, what was what was taking place? If you can give us a thumbnail sketch that the reformers wanted to, in quotes, reform. I mean, um, I think even Catholic historians would admit that there was stuff going on that probably shouldn't have been going on. Um, if if we're fair. So what was going on that the reformers saw as being so important that needed a reformation to take place? Yeah, absolutely. Great question. And, and you're exactly right. I mean, any honest historian, especially any Catholic historian, you would, honest Catholic historian would recognize that there were problems in the 16th century church. I mean, there's, there's no doubt about that, uh, historically speaking. There was all kinds of uh, ecclesiastical abuses. Um, you know, this is, this is the time at the tail end, historically speaking, right before Luther here in 1517 when he publishes his, his famous 95 Theses. You're, you're at the tail end of the Renaissance papacy, right? So the, there's ten popes, uh, you know, going back to the the uh, 15th century into the 16th century that they are identified as Renaissance popes, and these are were men who were, you know overwhelmingly more focused on the temporal aspects of the papacy rather than the spiritual aspects of the papacy. Some of them, although not all, were actually very immoral men and even lived lives of immorality while being pope, which is you know, a scandal and, and a blight on the history of the church. But you know that was the case. That's that's what happened. And so they engaged in many of these different ecclesiastical abuses, such as nepotism. You know they would put their nephews or even their you know their bastard sons into various church offices. Um, there was the ecclesiastical abuse of what was known as pluralism. It, pluralism was one man being bishop of multiple dioceses. Um, which you know you did for a multitude of reasons, but the primary one of which is for money. Frankly, uh, you know, men would try to be bishops of more than one diocese, three or four. Uh, you know, one I think was upwards into the twenties. Frankly, he was bishop of 20, twenty different dioceses. <laughs> um, but you know that so that's obviously a problem. But you would do that because you know you you could collect the revenue and some of the money from the diocese and, and enrich yourself. Um, and you know, unfortunately, that did. A, Occur, uh, and so obviously, if you're if you're engaging in pluralism, another abuse arises from that that you you know one man can't be in five different places. So you have the abuse of absenteeism, where you have a man who is bishop of a diocese but doesn't actually reside in his diocese. So you have the famous case, for example, of the Archdiocese of Milan during this period of time in the 16th century, that when uh, Saint Charles Borromeo is sent there to be the Archbishop of, of Milan. Uh, he's the first resident archbishop in that diocese in a century. So for a hundred years, the people of Milan did not actually have a bishop who lived within the confines of their archdiocese. Hmm. So that's, I mean, that's that's a scandal, right? I mean, there's in any age, that's a horrible problem. Um, then you also have other ecclesiastical abuses that erupted as well, and in different. Um, you know, corruption and things obviously are throughout the, the areas of the church. Now, uh, you had, you know, for example, lay, or, uh, clergy that were not living their, their promise of celibacy. You had malformed clergy, clergy that didn't really know the teachings of the church. Uh, and this wasn't something that's just, a, you know, to the 16th century. I mean, throughout periods of church history, if you know your church history, you, you see similar uh, types of issues, you know, throughout the 2000 year history of the church. I mean, frankly, we're dealing with 
those kinds of issues and maybe in a different way and a different focus, but we're still deal- dealing in even you know today's church with you know the sex abuse crisis, for example, with men, uh, you know, bishops and priests not living the the promise of celibacy, of corruption, of of um, you know blackmail, other kinds of things going on. So I mean, unfortunately, you know, the church is. Uh, e- even in the highest office at times, you know, we we are susceptible to to men who don't, you know, live out the vocation that they have been called to authentically, frankly. Um, and that's because we are all sinners. You know, we're fallen yet redeemed creatures, and so that's that's true of popes and bishops and cardinals and priests as it is of the laity uh, throughout any epoch of, of any era of history. So. Um, you know what's interesting though about this 16th century church and the fact that there were these abuses is that again as i mentioned it, it's it wasn't just the first time for example in the history of the church that you had these abuses um there was a significant crisis for example in the 11th century church uh over the clergy uh immorality uh one of the famous doctors of the church uh, um saint peter damian wrote a book called the book of gomorrah at the end of the 11th century uh which is a book that he wrote a series of letters actually that he wrote to pope saint leo the ninth um informing him or really challenging him to take on the the cleaning up so to speak of the catholic clergy that because many of them had had embraced homosexuality uh especially in the monasteries there was rampant concubinage of priests Specular, especially what we would call diocesan clergy, secular clergy were, you know, uh, having mistresses and concubines, and and so celibacy was not being lived at all, uh, or at least not well throughout the church. And Saint Peter Damian wrote these letters to the Pope and asked him to kind of reform and clean up the church. And actually, Saint Leo IX listened, and there was a great reform movement that happened uh, in the 11th century papacy to, to clean up some of these abuses within the church. So again, 16th century, not the first time you've had some issues in the church's history, what makes the 16th century a little bit unique is that it you you have had in the you know hundred plus years leading up into this point, actually probably almost 200 years leading up to this point, you had a series of things happen in the papacy that really weaken its prestige, weaken the respect of uh, you know Western uh, secular rulers for the Pope, and cause a significant crisis uh, within Christendom. And that begins in the 14th century with what was known as the Avignon Papacy, when the Popes left Rome and and lived in the city of Avignon in the south of France for nearly 70 years. Um, So they're participating at that time in the ecclesiastical abuse of absenteeism, which we talked about a minute ago. Uh, And then you had, once they come back to Rome, then you have, you know, a crisis that erupts called the Great Western Schism, in which there are, you know, one validly elected Pope and then two anti-Popes. Uh, eventually. And so the early part of the 15th century, we actually have three men claiming to be pope. Now, obviously, there's only one validly elected pope, but that caused a lot of confusion, a lot of problems in the church. And so the pope, the papacy, right, St. Peter, Christ gave the keys to Peter, and he was to as a source to be a source of unity within the church. And so now you have that that office that's supposed to be the sense of this source of unity is is obviously a source of disunity in the church. Uh, and that weakens its prestige, weaken, weakens the the role of the pope in 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 the Christian world. And so that leads into the the Renaissance papacy, then it leads into further ecclesiastical abuses and corruption and everything else we just talked about. And then now you have this university professor in uh, the little town of Wittenberg in Saxony, Germany, who decides that he wants to write an academic treatise uh, calling into question 
the practice uh, and the, the Catholic doctrine of indulgences. And many people kind of get this wrong with Luther. Many people believe, uh, and you even hear this in Catholics, um, Catholic sources, unfortunately, that that the issue that Luther had was you know he railed against the so-called selling of indulgences. Um, you know that, that you had these indulgence preachers that went around Christendom, kind of selling the faithful on buying indulgences, and it's like you know, be a get out of jail or get out of purgatory, you know, free card kind of thing. Um, and although there were some, there were bad uh, preachers. There were preachers that did prey on the ignorance of people to to, to generate uh, more revenue for them. Uh, it became. Uh, the problem with Luther was not that he complained about the, this kind of the, these preachers that were not preaching authentically and were preying on the ignorance of people, because other people in the church were complaining about that too. Uh, and that's another point: is all throughout these periods of time when there there have been ecclesiastical abuses and corruption and problems in the church, there are multiple people who are calling the church back to reform. Saint Peter Damon, I mentioned earlier, but others who see the problems and are trying to stand up and say, "Hey, we need to stop this. This needs to be changed. We need to." have a reform. Um, so Luther is not the first person who decides to do this. But what Luther does is Luther takes his reform a little bit – his so-called reform a little bit further. Right? He takes it into the realm of, of heresy because in his 95 Theses, a significant problem is that it's not that he calls, again, the issue with the corruption of the, the so-called sale of the indulgences. But what he says in the 95 Theses is that he questions whether the pope even has the authority to grant indulgences. And that smacks right, you know, right in the middle of a, uh, you know, a heretical teaching. Frankly, the, that it calls into question the actual doctrine of indulgences itself. It calls into question the authority of the papacy, um, and that's what gets him into trouble with the church. Many people think it's, you know, well, he was complaining about all these different abuses and corruption, and you know, the church kind of attacked him for that because he was railing against the, you know, the authority of the pope. Uh, he was railing against the, you know, all this abuse and corruption, and that's not really what it is. You know, he 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 really went after pretty central Catholic doctrine and teaching, and that's what gets him into trouble. Um, and then he kind of continues that though as he moves along his his movement. Hmm. Yeah, but he's attacking a. A papacy that's a weakened papacy, right? You make a point there. Exactly. It's really interesting. Yeah. So I see you painting a picture of this Catholic Church that has had problems, but problems all through her history and has had these reformers all throughout her history who are looking to reform the church from the inside. I guess the difference between them and Luther and the Protestant reformers what makes it more of a revolution is that they're working outside of the church. Is that fair to say? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's really twofold, right? They're working outside the church, um, and so they're not working within to try to reform. But it's also that they've, they embrace and they um, – they try they, and they promulgate right and problem try to propagate heretical teaching. So there's one thing to be a reformer in the church and call for, um, you know, the abuse of pluralism to stop, uh, the abuse of absenteeism to stop. You know, for example, when the popes are living in Avignon for 70 years, you have Saint Catherine of Siena. Uh, who is writing letters to the Pope in Avignon. Um, pretty, if you've read them, they're pretty fascinating and pretty actually <laughs> interesting and funny reading. I mean, she's very direct 
very, very direct. And in today's language, we would say she's in the face, right, of the Pope saying, you need to come back. This is a scandal. I mean, really calling him to task. Um, And so and she's calling for basically, you know, the reform of the church, that this abuse of absenteeism needs to stop. You're the Bishop of Rome. You need to be in Rome. And so, you know, the difference between St. Catherine of Siena, why she's a saint and Luther is not, right, is it saint for many different reasons. But one reason is that Catherine of Siena stayed within the faith. She stayed within the church. She never advocated any kind of heretical teaching. She never tried to change the teaching. She wasn't advocating, for example, oh, well, now, you know, the Pope is no longer the Pope because he's not in Rome, right? So Luther, on the other hand, says, you know, yes, there's these abuses, there's these, um, you know, corruption needs to be changed, it needs to be cleaned up, but... To do that, we have to create something completely different. We have to destroy what the church is, destroy the sacramental system, destroy um, you know the relationship of the civil society to of the secular society to the church, and create something brand new—a German national church that he argues for um, in one treatise in 1520. He he is establishing or trying to establish something completely different and embracing heretical theological teachings uh, as a result. Yeah, that's a great. That's a great. A great illustration, right? Because uh, you have on the one hand a, a, a true reformer who's working within the church, trying to writing writing very sternly to to the the pope, but working within that confines versus somebody else who says no, those confines are broken. We need to d- dismantle those. I think, I think the example of the church today, we're we're in a, a time of somewhat crisis. There's there's abuses happening. You know, these things are. Are, are a blight on, on the church. But I guess here's the example I'm thinking of. It's it's like saying that, oh, well, there's these bishops who've been covering up sexual abuse in the church. So uh, not they need to go, but all bishops need to go. The system of bishops is uh, should be dismantled. Is that an, exactly. a, a good comparison? Yeah, that's a fantastic example. Right. I mean, somebody who, who in today's church would, would argue for that, right, saying that the episcopacy needs to be dismantled, there needs to be lay control of the churches, or we need to go back and uh, you know embrace a, an old heresy known as conciliarism, where ecumenical councils you know, are should, should be implemented like some kind of parliamentarian system where you have these large gatherings of, of you know, clergy and, and lay people who would decide, you know, various uh, you know, doctrines or disciplines of the church or what have you, or would actually govern the church. Right? That's an old heresy called conciliarism, where you know the belief that that authority in the church really rests with ecumenical councils and not with the pope and bishops united to him. Uh, yeah, that would be somebody who embraces that instead of saying something like you know many people are saying today that you know we need to have better formation in in, in the seminary, we need to have uh, you know more faithful bishops who actually you know preach and teach. What the church has believed for two thousand years, what Christ has given to us, um, you know, we need to have maybe some, you know, lay oversight and certain functions, you know, certain things w- that go on within dioceses, so there's a greater transparency, you know, those kinds of. Oh, that is that's fine to say, but but the the former thing we talked about in terms of yeah, let's get rid of the bishops, let's get rid of the epi- episcopacy, let's change the fundamental structure of the church. That's a heretical notion, and that that then places you in the in the camp of a revolutionary and not a reformer. Yeah, I see more and more, especially with that example in in present times, the difference between a reformation and a revolution. So, speaking of this, St. Francis de Sales is one of my favorite saints of what we Catholics call the Counter-Reformation. And 
Of course, as a non-Catholic Christian, before I became a Catholic, I had no idea there was a thing called the Counter-Reformation. But, of course, if the Church is always reforming itself, then, of course, there's a response to the things that Luther and Zwingli and Calvin are bringing up. The, the Church just reforms itself from within. So, can you talk a bit about what the Church did in response to the Protestant reformers, how the Catholic Church reformed itself? Yeah, sure. So, um, and that brings up a good point too in terms of terminology that I that I like to use instead of saying which which many people commonly use the the Counter Reformation term as you did, or, or some, sometimes people say the Catholic Counter Reformation. I like to refer to it simply just as the Catholic Reformation, um, for that's what it was, right? If if as I argued previously, if if you know if the Protestant Reformation really wasn't a reform, it was a revolt or a revolution, then the to use the term counter reformation somehow implies that the church was countering this authentic reform of the Protestants um, when it really wasn't. There was no countering of anything. It was really a, a reform of the church herself because she was in need of reform. And so the Catholic Reformation really kind of takes takes root. Um, you know, through the Council of Trent, really. The Council of Trent is – it meets in uh, the, the middle – almost the middle of the 16th century in 1545, and it it takes about 18 – it takes 18 years actually for the council's business to conclude. That doesn't mean that the council the conciliar fathers were sitting around you know, the city of Trent for 18 years and it took them that long to do it. There were two actual suspensions of the council for a number of time – for a number of years. Once was for a decade. Uh, so the council was – Suspended and its work wasn't wasn't kind of taken back up again for another decade in, in one instance. So it took 18 years for the council's work to to be completed. Um, but when it was, it was a, a thorough thorough reform, uh, you know, throughout the church. And interestingly, what the council did in many ways is it is that it took um, various practices and reform uh, reforms that had occurred in other places of the church, for example, in Spain and even in England, um, and embraced those those different uh, disciplines and practices and whatnot, and then applied those universally. Perfect example of this is the whole seminary system, right? Here, before the Council of Trent, there really was no uh, way in which, no universal way in which a, or even mandated way in which, you know, a man was formed for the priesthood. It was very individualized. It was very specific to each diocese, each bishop, each each pastor even. Um, and so you had, unfortunately, you know, many priests who were not well-formed. They didn't know the faith very well. They didn't uh, know Latin even in some cases very well. They, you know, they couldn't uh, argue effectively against uh, heretics when they arose, which was the major reason why St. Dominic founded the Order of Preachers uh, is because as he was traveling through uh, the 13th century south of France, he saw how the clergy in that region could not reason or could not counter the theological arguments of the Cathars or of the Albigensians in that area because they just didn't know the faith and they didn't know how to preach it while they weren't hadn't been taught. And so, um, you know, he was moved by the Holy Spirit. He founded that order of preachers in order to combat, you know, heresy and to and to form a group of priests uh, and religious who would who knew the faith well and knew how to teach it uh, and preach it. But um, so the seminary system actually in in uh, the restoration of of the Catholic faith in England under uh, Queen Mary Tudor, you had Cardinal Reginald Pope. 
people who actually began this this idea of a seminary where you would have men go to a specific place, a specific school that was established where they would be trained in in the theology, they would be trained in in teachings of the faith uh, and in the spiritual life. And so that was successful there. Uh, and then the church recognized that that was something that did be done universally. So as part of one of the reforms of the Council of Trent. That was we saw we have the creation of the seminary system. So Trent did that. Trent also restated Catholic doctrine uh, in order to reaffirm what the church had all, had taught for 1,500 years. But but they restated that doctrine in order to combat the Protestant heresies that were very prominent at the day or at the time. And it also you know really kind of invigorated Catholic life. Um, the, the council called for the, the creation, for example, of a, cate- a universal catechism that could be used to teach the, the faith. And so a, pope, a later pope, Pope St. Pius V, who reigned after the council, he implemented the decrees of the council by um, reforming the liturgy, for example, as well as uh, instituting the, this universal catechism, uh, which was the only universal catechism for the church up until the, 19, or the 20th century in 1992 when John Paul II promulgated the new revised universal catechism, the one we have today. So there were a lot of things that, that, the, that the council did and then – through the pontificate of, of St. Pius V, who really implemented the reform decrees of the council uh, that brought about the Catholic Reformation. And, and really the last aspect of it was uh, the formation of a new religious order uh, that came about during this period of time as well, uh, the Society of Jesus, or as we know them, or as we you know uh, commonly call them, the Jesuits. Uh, St. Ignatius of Loyola and his companions uh, created this order at that time with the express purpose of, of being at the disposal of the Holy Father, of being able to go to these areas uh, to, to preach and to teach and to call others back into the faith. And so you have so many great Jesuit saints during this time, people like St. Saint, um, Saint Peter Canisius, who ministered in uh, you know, Protestant areas of northern Germany uh, and, and helped to bring many fallen away Catholics, we would call them now, you know, Protestants, uh, into the Catholic faith. Uh, St. Francis de Sales, you just mentioned, you know, not a Jesuit, but he was ministered. He was the Bishop of Geneva, though he didn't reside there because it was heavenly Calvinistic, but he, he worked greatly in, in and trying to bring, um, you know, those who had left the faith or the, those who were Protestant into the Catholic faith, and so this was a great flowering of saints. I mean, one thing you see as we study church history is that in, in various time periods is that the Holy Spirit, you know, uh, kind of responds to the needs of the church. And so during that time of great crisis, there was this great council, and there was the this great um, blossoming, really, of just so many wonderful and beautiful holy men and women uh, who helped lead this reform movement and put the church back onto a more sure and confident footing um, as a result of this, this kind of horrific cleaving of Christendom, as one Catholic historian called it, the, the events of the Protestant Revolution. That was a fantastic summary. Thank you so much for that. I think it's so it's so interesting that, um, you know, if we're if we're honest, if we're just gonna look history straight in the face, we we have to say that yeah, there's times in the history of the Catholic Church of the Church that we believe Jesus founded that it's going a bit off the rails. But the response can't be to tear that church down and start something new, which is what it seemed like these Protestant reformers. We're trying to do the response is to work within the church, and we see, like you said, this is these are fantastic examples of how the Holy Spirit uh, helps to bring forth these movements, these new orders, these saints, these great acts of reformation from within the church when those times 
when that's necessary, right? This is a, the Catholic Counter-Reformation for me is a fantastic example of what, of that sort of thing. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, it's, it's, uh, and, and that's, you know, I like to, to, you know, to tell people, I get asked some questions now, you know, especially in light of the current crisis when I go and give talks at parishes and things like that about, about, you know, the current crisis and how, how we respond and this and that. And, and, you know, so I give some different ideas, but one of the things I try to leave people with is, look, I mean, one of the reasons why it's important for us to study church history is so that we have an understanding of what the men and women who have come before us, before us, our brothers and sisters in the faith, what, what they have gone through. And not only what they have gone through, but then how they responded authentically. And not only that, but even more importantly, as we, as we were just talking about, how the Holy Spirit um, you know, continues to guard and to guide and animate the church. Uh, and so, you know, Christ promised that the, the, that the, to send the Spirit, He did uh, to the church, and so the, the Spirit is still with the church. And and so, despite the failings of you know fragile, weakened, fallen, yet redeemed, as I mentioned earlier, creatures within the church, even in its highest offices, you know, we can always count on the fact that the Holy Spirit, that you know, God, right, is with the church. Um, not just Christ, but the Spirit, the Father. I mean, the Trinity. And so, uh, you know, if if we have the Trinity, which we do, right? Then we have everything. I mean, it's you know, we have God. And so we have to just realize that that you know, yeah, bad times are going to come in the church, right? Bad times have been here before. Uh, things have been worse. Things have been better. You know, so we just need to continue to each day live our lives in in as close uh, in a relationship with Jesus as we can, participating in the sacrament sacraments of the church, receiving that grace from those sacraments, from our prayer life, and becoming the best Christians and Catholics that we can be, and then, you know, ministering and discipling to others whom the Lord brings into our path, so that, uh, you know, hopefully the joy we have within our lives of being a disciple of Christ and a member of his, of his church, that we can, can, that joy can radiate to others, and they will want to share in that joy, and that we can all help each other as we're supposed to as part of this pilgrim church go to heaven one day. Amen. <laughs> I have one more question for you. And what do you think about this? I, I wonder, looking at the landscape of Christianity today, how do you think the reformers, the so-called reformers, the, the revolutionaries, I, I really think it's fair to call them that, how do you think they would judge their success or failure? Oh yeah, that's that's a great question. I mean, um, it probably, you know, each one would have probably his own uh, different response to that. I know that... Uh, that Luther, at the end of his life, has uh, you know, I've read a quote of his where he was he was kind of he was looking he was surveying the scene right of of what was going on at the time you know in the middle part almost the middle part of the 16th century when he died in 1546 looking at um, you know. What had happened, right? What what he what he what had he brought about? And he was actually kind of depressed uh, in a certain sense uh, about what he saw. He was um, you know disconcerted, I guess maybe would be a better word. And because what he was concerned about, what he was upset about, was the what he saw was the indifference of people. What he what he saw and what he was most upset about was the fact that that he believed right that he had brought forth this great um, refreshment, so to speak, of of the Christian faith, right? This this kind of getting rid of the shackles of the Catholic system, in his were you know, in his mind, and creating this kind of pure, authentic expression of the Christian faith as as it was lived, perhaps, by the early church. And he thought, 
that what would come from that is this great flourishing of faith, that you would have more people embrace the faith, that people would actually live the faith authentically, and that you would you would have like you know really the kingdom of of God on earth kind of thing. And instead, what he saw was indifference. That people you know they were obviously very devout. You know, Catholics. There were you know devout Protestants, people who followed his teachings, Luther, you know, Lutherans, Calvinists, other Calvinists. But he, there were also the vast majority of people he saw were just indifferent. They're just like, well, you know, if if the church teaches this thing, and you know, Luther's saying that's wrong, and he's teaching something different, and Calvin's saying, well, this is you know, no, 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 it's it's this, and this guy over here in in Zurich, Zwingli, he's saying that. Um, you know, what am I supposed to believe? What, what that ends up leading to ultimately, which which Luther even recognized at the time, was indifference and skepticism. And that's what he was bemoaning. And I think, frankly, that is – if you look at our world today, he he would be upset. He would kind of still have that same, I think, thought, and he would probably be shocked to the level of indifference and skepticism that exists in our, frankly, neo-pagan world that, that – you know, one of the as as Brad Gregory from uh, University of Notre Dame wrote this fantastic book called "The Unintended Consequences of the Reformation," right? Or the unintended Reformation, right? The the the, the that there are these unintended consequences. And one of the unintended consequences of the Protestant revolt is this. I I think, and I think Gregory uh, Brad Gregory argues effectively as well. This 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 rise of of skepticism and indifferentism. Among among people, uh, you know, uh, in terms of the faith, and so and we see that in our own day and age. I mean, you see so many people who, um, you know, you have a small percentage who are who are devout Christians. Let's say whatever the denomination, you have a, a small percentage of people on the other side that are like fiercely atheistic, but the vast majority of people are in the middle. They're just kind of indifferent. They they may believe in God, they may not believe in God. They don't really see the different or the importance of it or this or that or whatever. Is there heaven? Is there hell? Don't even necessarily know what those things are. Don't necessarily believe what they are. And and I think in the Western world, one can trace the origins of that, uh, of what we see in our modern world today to this Protestant revolution that was brought about. And there's a lot of reasons for that, and, and Brad Gregory goes into great detail uh, in his book uh, on that. So uh, maybe he's somebody actually to have on your on your podcast in the future. He's a great, uh, great man and and uh, great scholar. So he has some very very interesting. He's done a lot of interesting work on the effects of the Protestant Reformation in on Western civilization and in the modern world. But I think that's what what Luther would see, and he would still be upset by it, frankly. Yeah, that's a that's a fantastic way of putting it. You know, I I think about how reduced our Christian witness is. I think about Jesus. Uh, in the Gospel of John, praying for unity amongst all—I mean, prophesying—you could say. Um, I, I think that was very much a kind of prophecy. He was—he was in his prayer there, talking about how Christians need to be united and how he's praying for Christians to be united. And and the fact that we're we're so ununited is just such a poor witness to the rest of this indifferent secular world. Oh yeah, that's very true. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned, I mean, right? Jesus's prayer of unity in John 17. I mean, that's that's exactly it. You have, 
uh, and, and that's you know that's even when you go back to the early church, for example, you know Pope uh, Clement the first wrote a letter in the early you know before the year one hundred to the church in Corinth, and and he's you know uh, kind of uh, remanding or he's, he's he's kind of arguing with them, and and uh, not really arguing with them, but he's really reprimanding them is the word I was looking for. He's reprimanding them because they they were in they had basically thrown out the priests uh, in their community and and had created new priests on their own authority they basically had started a revolution and he reprimanded them you know severely saying that look your your revolt is causing discord within the not only discord within the church but it's also causing problems in the the secular world um, because disunity as he put it is from the devil and unity is from god and so when when we are dis when we're when we are in a state of disunity when we're in a state of discord with one when we're against each other then not only does that affect us within the church but it affects those outside and people outside say well why would i want to become christian look they can't even agree among themselves you know where's the so-called love and unity and peace that's supposed to come from being a follower of jesus and being a member of his church if you guys are all arguing with amongst yourselves you know, why should I join that? So that's that's a that was a you know that's something that, that the early church right before the year 100 was dealing with. Let alone the 16th century church, let alone the 21st century church. That's been a consistent problem, um, you know, throughout the whole 2,000 year history of of the church. And so again, that's why we as Catholics we have to be mindful of that, not tear each other down, right? Work to help each other, focus on our own spiritual life, right, and help our neighbor as much as we can in that area as well. Um, but you know that's that's so that we can be an effective witness to the world because that's the whole point, right? The church is is the instrument of salvation. It's supposed to be the city on a hill, right? The light to the nations, and we we can't be the light if we are extinguishing the light through our own discord and disunity. Yeah, that's I love how you underscored that. It's it's so important, right? It does break my heart to to see the the way the church is today, and I mean the larger this you know, in quotes, reformed church, I guess, with so many different denominations and so many different ways of interpreting what the faith is. I mean, I've had friends, I've had friends who said, asked that question that you mentioned a minute ago, like, how can I, why would I believe any of this if you all have different opinions on this, speaking of Christianity mm -hmm. in general? And I've had friends on the other side of the coin who've been Christian for a long time, who've left the faith, who struggled in their faith, who couldn't who who couldn't see a way forward because there were so many people saying different things, right? So the fact that the church isn't united under Christ the way he prayed for it, it is affecting our witness. But I, I like your, I love the way you put that. The important, it begins at us. It begins with each of us realizing our own call to to holiness, I, I suppose, to be that witness in, in in our own lives, right? It begins with us, that reformation, really. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, that's that's uh, there's a there's a great quote. Um, let me see if I can find it real quick. Um, from uh, oh yeah, Gilles of Viterbo, who was a one of a, a church reformer in this early part of the 16th century, um, who said, you know, he said, man man must be changed by religion, not religion by man. Right, so man must be changed by religion, not religion by man. So it's it's you know it starts with us, and it starts with um, you know us recognizing that that we are followers of Jesus, right? That that we need His grace, that we need to work on our own internal 
self, our own reform, and then we can take that reform and which we've kind of you know done that, and that's a constant struggle, right? It's not like we do that when, we're, when we like we come to an, a point in our life and say, oh, we're done, you know, we're fully reformed, we're good to go. No, no, it's it's a constant struggle every day, right? But we have to be on that path and have to see that uh, every day. Um, but then we can take that, you know. To others, right? We can reform others, and that's actually one aspect of the Catholic Reformation that I didn't mention. That Paul, Pope Paul III, when he began kind of the the impetus to or began the preparation for the calling of the Council of Trent, he focused on that and said that's what needs to happen. That it's a reform first within. We have to reform the church before we can go out and you know uh, kind of go back after, so to speak, in in a, in a positive way. You know, the Protestants and those who have left the the, the church. It's it's more first about us than others. Reform starts within, and then we can go uh, external. And so that's that's you know that, that call that's still very much true today. And so that's something that and hopefully you know some of the things that we see in the current crisis of the church with with the you know sex abuse crisis here. Hopefully you know the 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 effect of that um, in the future. Will will be a church that focuses on reforming herself, um, you know, and, and and doing what we need to do in the in the current age in order to have you know uh, men priests and bishops you know who who follow their promise of celibacy. Um, we know that we teach authentically the church's teaching on human sexuality, uh, that we embrace the teachings of the church authentic, and 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 that we can then take those teachings right to the world in a world that. Is neo-pagan, as I mentioned, and is in desperate need of the saving message and saving gospel of, of Christ. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's so well put. Hey, thank you so much for being on this episode. This has been wonderful. Uh, where can people find out more about what you're up to? Yeah, great. Thanks, Keith, so much again for, for having me on the show. I've really enjoyed the conversation this this evening. And um, people can find me. The best way is is my own website. It's it's just my name, steveweidenkopf.com. It's all just one word. And on there, you can find information about uh, the books that I've written, uh, various uh, articles as well that have appeared in Catholic Answers, and uh, and ways in which to contact me if people have questions as well. I'm happy to answer them. Awesome. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for this episode. I hope our listeners really enjoy it. I've loved this conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks, Keith. God bless. God bless you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Cordial Catholic Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation I had with Steve Weidenkopf. Hopefully you learned something new. I know I did. He's a very fascinating guy with a lot of great things to say. Visit his website at steveweidenkopf.com. If you can't spell that, check the show notes or punch it into Google and it will spell check it for you. Visit my website at thecordialcatholic.com for show notes for this show or any of our shows and for my blog and writing as well. Please like The Cordial Catholic on Facebook and join a growing community there that's following the work that we're doing here. And make sure you follow me on Twitter at Cordial Catholic. You can send your feedback to cordialcatholic at gmail.com, and I'd love to hear from you. I really enjoy engaging with listeners after the show is done and having that fantastic back and forth. I've met a lot of great people lately and love continuing that conversation. Please do email me with any and all feedback that you might have. That's cordialcatholic at gmail.com. 
Make sure you subscribe to this podcast on Apple Music, Google Play Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else you find podcasts. If you can leave a review as well, especially on Apple Podcasts, that helps to push the show out to new people. All those ratings and reviews are so, so important for small podcasts like this one. They get it pushed to the top of the charts and help new people find it. Visit patreon.com slash cordialcatholic to support the show. Even $1 a month helps. Thank you so much for listening and God bless. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordialcathy. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.